Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me tonight is the senior NFL insider at the Athletic, Diane Rossini. Diane, how are you? Joining you live in person from Sin City. We are doing this in person for the first time since we started doing this, right? Yes. I think this is the first time I've seen you since Jets training camp. I think that is Which would no. Have been like I July? saw you at another athletic event. Oh, that's right. That's right. But we had like a meeting in October. That's correct. Right. But it was very brief. Yes. We have not had a conversation like this in person really since you started the job, which is very. I exciting. think there's no better place than Las Vegas to have. How are you feeling about this week? Absolutely horrified, concerned, worried. Um, I had seen your tweet earlier in the day where you made that comparison of attacking Vegas in your 20s versus the Vegas experience at our age. Excuse me, your age. You're a lot younger than me. Uh, but because of how I attacked Vegas in my 20s, we're the same age. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I actually believe you on that. Yeah. I just think eight days is a long time. I'm excited for the football side of this. But the feeling you get when you step off that plane and you walk into the casino, there is nothing like it. I have more energy than I ever have. But I am smart enough, old enough, experienced enough to know When I see that airport again, when I'm leaving to go home, I'm going to physically look and feel like a different woman because of what I'm about to go through over the next few days. And and look, I'm one of these tempted, easily tempted people. I already played slots. Like I've been here an hour. Um, So I'm going to be broke as well. So I, I look forward to see how I'm going to be able to navigate the path by having to be a professional and do my job, cover football but also try to resist all the fun parties and people and all the things that I actually really love to do. You got to pace yourself. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. You got to pace yourself, especially early. I came here a lot when I was younger because I lived in LA. And so every single group of my friends from college, high school, different groups of high school friends, every single one, when they were like, yeah, we're going to Vegas. I was like, I'll come. It's free. It's a four and a half hour drive. I'll meet you there. And I would lose way too much money every single time. But that was every single time I'd roll in and drive in. That drive in was always very energizing, very cool. Like It's a very nice moment. And I thought, all right, I'm 15 years older now. I'm sober now. Like a lot of other things have changed. Still the same feeling. Like driving down Las Vegas Boulevard by the Las Vegas signs. Like, all right, I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a very fun week. How I feel on Sunday a week from now may be a little bit different. But at least in this moment. I'm really looking forward to what the week has in store for us. Yeah, I wish we could bottle up this type of energy and just bring it back to our homes <laughs> so we could just get through the day-to-day boring monotony, you know, that part of our lives. But uh, here we are. I think we're going to figure it out. So uh, the good thing is, when I was taking off, when I was in the air, when I landed, there was just news constantly. It's been nonstop. And that's why we wanted to do this today because there's going to be a lot of time to talk about the game, but we've got to kind of sweep up eight to 10 different hirings and little tiny bits of the news cycle that have happened over the last two or three days. I mean, you've been doing this constantly. You were at the senior bowl last week talking to everybody. So there's a lot of stuff to chew on before we get deep into the super bowl specific talk. Yeah. I didn't really have a lot of discussions about the championship weekend, about the super bowl when I was having those conversations with the different scouts and GMs and head coaches that were all around and agents as well. The buzz has been all about the coaching cycle here the hirings, the firing still even, of has something changed? Has something shifted in the NFL? Or has this happened before and we just forgot that this new identity that the league has may actually just be a repeat of what we've seen in the past? It's mm-hmm. just been a while since we've seen it like this. But that being said, there are a lot more questions being asked right now than I, than I think people would, would even believe from decision makers wondering, watching other teams make these hires and move on from other coaches and, and make these changes. And 
there's just a lot of, I think, concern over, all right, well, where are we headed here? Mm -hmm. How are we going to start changing the way we're calling these games and even uh, installing these types of cultures? Let's start there then, because now we have all the seats filled and we can take a step back and look at what this cycle was as it is complete. What are your bigger picture takeaways after having those conversations that you just did over the last league? What are the two or three things that kept coming up when you were talking about what this cycle means for the league? I almost feel like the icebreaker for every conversation I had was, can you believe Belichick doesn't have a job? Mm-hmm. That seemed to be a bit of an obsession lately and and collecting a lot of different I, I think opinions. it's a lot of self-preservation. Where it's like, if that guy didn't get a job, like what happens if things go south for me? You make such a great point because I had that conversation with people of comparing, putting yourself as putting yourself in his shoes, but also recognizing, wow, it does not matter how many Super Bowl rings you have. It does not matter if your nickname is the GOAT. You may be unemployed. And and it just goes to show you why so many of these coaches work at the level and the pace that they do, knowing that in a second it could be gone. So that being said, you take a look around at all the different coaches that were hired and the and the hot names will even say. And it just seemed initially it was a, once again the search for the next Sean McVay. You mm-hmm. hear that all the time. That always seems to be the theme that a lot of owners are looking for. Um and then you have the play callers that that are going to be able to get the most out of the quarterback with whatever team that is. Obviously, I, I immediately think Carolina when I think we need to get the best play caller here that can get the most out of our quarterback, um, knowing that we got to make this work. But what it, did people think of the Canales movement that you talked to about? Peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's fast, it but I can fast. understand it being fast because we're out of those guys. That pool is so thin now for play callers that have not gotten bumped up into the next job. I mean, Brian Callahan doesn't call plays, and he was one of the guys that got a job in this cycle. And I'm not surprised. I think that makes total sense. I thought he'd get one based on how he interviewed over the last couple years. But even if it makes sense for Carolina based on where they are and what they needed in a head coach, the fact that these guys are calling offensive plays for one year and now they become the next next hot thing just because that's what teams are chasing, it it just feels like at a certain point we're going to hit critical mass. At a certain point, we're going to run out of guys that deserve to get those jobs. I'm not saying Dave Knowles doesn't, but I, it feels like we're going to get to a point where the, the pool gets too shallow. Normally, we know a lot about these new head coaches because they've spent a lot of years in the league mm-hmm. or they had two or three outstanding seasons that made you, that just it appeared to just be automatic. Of course, they're going to be a head coach. You use the example of Raheem Morris. Look how long it took him to get a head coaching job. That's more the norm. What we're seeing now is very unique. And so when you talk about Brian Callahan, and and we've heard about Brian Callahan for a while, he's not new to the space at all. No. You know, and, and he's had opportunities outside of Cincinnati before and interest from, from other teams. But with that in mind, Dave Canales didn't didn't interview anywhere else, right? He he was he just obviously had his coaching position in Tampa and met with Carolina, and that seemed to get a lot of momentum. And they spoke to a lot of uh, potential candidates, or at least candidates there. Um, and the fact that he was able to beat out who he did tells you that he's saying something that ownership there, David Tepper, who from all the conversations I've had was very open-minded headed into this and really was listening to others, was really um, trying to be in the background of this process, but obviously overseeing it all. But you go from a first-year play caller that gets a head coaching job to a culture setter, like a Dan Quinn with Washington, who, you know, he's obviously defensive-minded, but I, I see him more as all of it, a whole. Do you feel like that? archetype of candidate was more popular in this cycle because of what's happened in Detroit? Like when you were talking to people, how often did Dan Campbell come up as like a model for what other franchises might be chasing? Constantly. It, that that is That seems to be the direction. But then you say that and it doesn't make a lot of sense that Anthony Weaver didn't get a head mm-hmm. coaching job. That Mike Vrabel doesn't have a head coaching job. Um, obviously, we, we, we discussed Bill Belichick already, but you know, Jim Harbaugh, that makes sense. That one's the easy one to explain. We understand that he's a proven winner. He's been there and, and 
the best quarterback of all the teams that needed a head coach is there in Los Angeles. But the thought here is we need someone like Dan Campbell to set the tone, to give our team a clear identity. And I think that is why Raheem Morris is getting his shot now. It's why Dan Quinn is getting another opportunity after what I think some people had concerns that the performance in the playoffs took, you know, uh, hurt his stock. Yeah. But it obviously didn't. And the way the chips fell in Washington, which I don't truly believe Dan Quinn was the number one target. Let's talk about this because this is the number one thing I wanted to ask you about. Watching how it unfolded immediately after the news broke and just how quickly both sides were trying to get their story out there to get ahead of it and to make sure that they were the one that was in control of the messaging. What is your read on what actually happened with Ben Johnson and Washington? I think there's a little bit of everything based on my conversations. I think Ben Johnson truly is the opposite of what we see in a lot of coordinators now, which is he's not in a rush to jump mm-hmm. into the next big role. I And by the way, I've met coaches around the league that have zero goals of becoming a head coach. And I'm not saying that that's Ben Johnson. He does want to be a head coach. That, that has been made clear. But he wants it to be the right opportunity. And I think he wants to feel that he has the structure for it to set up for him to be successful. So, in what was end, lacking in Washington in your mind, based on what you've heard through the grapevine? Like, what were the elements that he might have been a little bit worried about? I don't believe that he was connecting with the people that were involved in that search. I don't think he agreed with this with the vision they had and how he sees it. Um, I do think money is always going to be a factor in these. I don't think it was the driver, though. It feels to me, and this is just from outside looking in, reading the tea leaves. He's at a place now where he is so comfortable and happy with the job that he has in Detroit, and he is so interested in taking the right opportunity and not the first opportunity, that he's inclined to just say a crazy number because that's the thing that's going to push him to take something because he's not in a hurry. Is that wrong? No, I I think that tells you that he's not ready, though, and that's okay. You know, I think it's okay to be still sometimes, and and I think that's what's so... I respect it. I I honestly, like, envy it as a personality trait. (laughs) Absolutely. To be able to just be, right? Everyone is always climbing. Everyone's always thinking next. Why not be in the moment and and try to excel as much as you can and max out that space? They didn't win a Super Bowl. They had obviously a phenomenal season. But I know he and his quarterback, Jared Goff, have a fantastic relationship. They've grown together. And so maybe the opportunity comes next year. I think the reason why 98% 98% of the league looks at this and go, are you crazy? You take this opportunity because you look at situations like Lou Anarumo last year. Yeah. One of the hottest names in the coaching cycle. It's such a different resume though. Right. When it you're is. A, how old's Lou? 58. Mm-hmm. So if you're a 58 to 60 year old defensive coordinator compared to a 35 year old offensive coordinator that has put together one of the best five offenses linked for multiple years. I think you are justified and assuming that your opportunities will continue to come, where for the other guys, maybe they're a little bit more fleeting. Yeah, and they, and they have a little bit more patience there because they've got a lot more time. Um, and maybe there is a little naivete there, right? Just not understanding how difficult it actually is. You talk to Dan Quinn now, and and the Washington Commander's social media team posted a video of him walking off the private jet that picked him up to bring him to, to Virginia, and he exhaled when he walked off the plane and it and it was very authentic. It wasn't some weird edit job. It was, I'm back. It, yeah. This was a road, right? Because we know he had had opportunities. Some teams were flirting with him over the years, but nothing seemed to be right. So finally, Washington pulls the trigger on him. But one of the conversations I had at the Senior Bowl that that came up multiple times uh, over dinner was. The idea that some of these coaches, like Belichick, want all the power. Mm -hmm. Is this a good thing? Are you okay with that as an owner? And we obviously just saw that is not true. Owners are not comfortable with a strong personality, a decision maker, telling everyone in the building what they want. Is that ego and power dynamics? Or is that looking at recent history and realizing that most of the time, that setup hasn't worked. These are different jobs now. It's a lot being asked of a coach to run personnel and the coaching staff. 
I mean, there aren't that many examples recently, even the way that it ended in New England, of these guys being the figurehead of the organization and it going well compared to a more traditional setup in some of these other spots. If you're asking me, I'm putting my money on someone that has the answers to a lot of things. Bill Belichick has seen everything. Yeah. Every I understand this idea, this philosophy of collaboration. It sounds great, but somebody has to have the vision. Somebody has to make the decisions. Yes, you want to hear a lot of different voices. And maybe that's where this becomes a problem. Owners that want a lot of different people in the room weighing in that way, you get, you're seeing it from all different angles. Logically, that is better. That's, you would prefer that, right? Like if more people being involved in these conversations, you want it to be collaborative, you want more ideas as part of the process. In a vacuum, I think I can understand why people are chasing that, but I also understand that there are downsides. I think I also just look at it in my own life. Exactly. I, I go to the people that are older who have done it and tell me everything they did wrong to learn as much as I can. And, and I just, I think there's something valuable that you're missing out on if, if you're going to include the ego part of this. So you look at the situation in, in Atlanta, and I don't think Arthur Blank had an ego in all of this. I think he listened to the people around him, people like Rich McKay, who really wanted Raheem Morris to be the head coach. That's where his support was from the start. They allowed Arthur Blank to spend time with Bill Belichick. Belichick went on his yacht. They had a conversation. And he also flew Belichick on his private jet into Atlanta to his home. They had another one. Um, and I think truly believe if he was not influenced, if Arthur Blank was not listening to others in his building, he would have probably hired Bill Belichick. But the voices of others that he trusts and believe in told him that, that Raheem Morris was the guy. As I look at the landscape overall, beyond the head coaching move, but looking at the coordinator moves and everything that we've heard about maybe why it didn't work out with Vic Fangio in Miami, it just feels like a lot of people in charge of these teams and a lot of these people in charge of these organizations don't want high-profile, important members of the organization to be black boxes where it, it doesn't feel like information is moving both ways. It doesn't feel like everyone's operating on the same page. Even if that guy is maybe more qualified or the most qualified person to have that job, I just think that dynamics in the league between coaches and players, between coaches and coaches, between ownership and coaches, it feels like they're changing. And I just don't think many people in charge want that one-way line of communication with these guys who are a little bit more closed off. Would well, you say you, that's fair? You use the word communication, and I think that's what we're actually talking about here in terms of what owners want more of. And I don't necessarily know if communication is the best trait of a lot yeah. of people in these organizations, and that's where the problems come. So you bring up the point of not giving the power to the head coach to oversee personnel, to make those decisions on who he wants on, on the 53-man and uh, who they're going to go after in free agency and eventually draft. But then you're seeing other organizations allowing the general manager to, to be that, to have the final say. And it makes you wonder, when you look back historically, what works better? Is it the head coach and GM having those split duties? Is it giving the GM all the power? Um, Seattle, I'm very interested to see mm -hmm. what the dynamics are going to be there. From what I can gather, John Schneider is going to be calling all the shots for the Seahawks. What is different about that than, let's say, Bill Belichick coming into Atlanta? I think it's the proven infrastructure. That, that, to me, is what's different. Because I think you can have a coach that is in charge of the 53, right? And Cal Shanahan is driving the, the bus in San Francisco. We've seen it work in other places. But look at the strength of that San Francisco front office. And we've got, what, three, four, five guys that were a part of that infrastructure in 2017 that now became GMs? That's my problem with the Belichick thing. It's not Bill Belichick having a final say over the 53. It's, okay, well, who's the general manager going to be? Who's See, the assistant general manager I think you're jumping be? the gun. I think you're giving credit to a front office in San Francisco, right? So we'll go through. We have Minnesota's GM comes from the San Francisco tree. Uh, Martin Mayhew, Adam Peters, Adam Peters, Ryan Carthon. I think that's it, right? Right. So Ryan yeah. Carthon is now the GM, executive vice president of the Tennessee Titans. Adam Peters is now the general manager of the Commanders. Um, okay. They just started. Let's, let's see. 
let's see. They've been given this opportunity coming off this tree in San Francisco, and they are general managers now. But let's see how this transpires over the next few years with the type of players they draft. What type, what type of teams they're building? And Tennessee is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Yeah. He has been given the keys. Rand Carthon is the Tennessee Titans. He has all the power and all the control. Because Brian Kelly doesn't care. He doesn't. And he is going to go in there. Coach. And even if he did care, I don't necessarily believe that ownership there was open to giving a coach power there. Because they just fired someone that had all the power there. Or almost all the power. So I think... Time will tell if that model works. I think in theory, again, everybody wants this collaborate, the collaborative effort where everyone's on the same page and deciding and talk. That's not how it works. It's not that cut and dry from, from the way it's always been explained to me. You want it to be that way. And it's nice, I think, initially. But when it comes down to it, you're going to need someone with that vision. Belichick, I get. Right. I mean, there's the way that it went in New England over the last couple of years. And I think the, the thing that would scare me the most, if I was Rich McKay, if I was anyone on that search committee, would have been the idea potentially that it would just been getting the band back together. Front office wide, coaching staff wise. That's my concern. Whoever's at the top, as long as you have four or five lieutenants under you that check you, that can push you, that are checks and balances for your process, all of that, that's fine. With Belichick, though, I think there are concerns about what that might have looked like. On Vrabel's side, what is your sense of why like Vrabel doesn't have a head coaching job right now? I don't think that there was a fit for him. I don't think he sat in front of any owner who thought that his style was going to work for what they were looking for. What an interesting word to use, though, right? Because that's what we're talking about. It's like the way that these guys are personality-wise, the way that they come off, how big of a figure they cut within the building. Do you know I had a GM at the Senior Bowl who mentioned to me, Vrabel's physical build, that he's a very large human being and can be very intimidating to to people in an organization that are going to be part of these decisions. And that is a factor, which I left. I said, stop. That That's not something that's real. Who cares what someone physically looks like? And he said, I'm just telling you, I've been I've been in rooms and, and somebody's Physical presence can make a difference. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Outside of football, it has an effect, right? They always say really tall men have better opportunities. In yeah, tell me about roles. it. Yeah, tell me about it. I, I, as I sit here living my 5'11 life for the last 35 years and all, everything that comes with it. Really tall, stunning, beautiful women are, are on TV, which is why I'm on a podcast now, right? <laughs> this is what happens, Robert. <laughs> but but I, I do think Making me feel great right now about where my career has ended up. <laughs> But this, I think that Belichick and Vrabel are very different. I feel like also from an age factor, Vrabel got stuck in that weird late 40s, early 50s bracket Mm -hmm. where you're not really young anymore. You know, you're not like Mike McDonald running around. I was surprised that the commanders didn't even meet him, though, for an interview, even just to learn, right? Because I think we can give. Uh, him credit for for having success in Tennessee. We keep talking about culture building, identity, identity. When you watch a team and understand like what the coaching is and what sort of processes are going into it, like that you watch that team and you understood what it was. It, it was there was no gray area to those early Titans teams. Yeah, and even talking to players there since, you know, they, I think they're still baffled by it because there was just so much respect for for what he can do. And and even at the Senior Bowl, that was a lot of the buzz too. Of, Oh, where is he? Getting? Everyone just thought he was going to pop up and get a job, um, and that that word just didn't get out. and And I do believe that there were some teams, or there are some teams that were interested in bringing him, bringing him in to be a defensive coordinator. We'll see if that still pans out. But I think that would be pretty shocking to to see him go from where he was. But <laughs> he might happens. as well just get paid this year and hang out, right? G- golf is fun. Yeah. When you're getting paid a lot of money from somebody else. And He's going to be on a short list for head coaching jobs next year. He doesn't have to go put his time in as a coordinator this year. I don't feel like that's necessary. See, I don't know. Because we're seeing such a shift in the way owners are hiring and they are looking for that young and hot type of play caller initially right out of the gate. Um, obviously, we'll have to see what happens over the next year and, and which emerging offensive coordinators uh, are coming out. Because you bring up a great point, which is, they're extinct 
right? Everyone wants Sean McVay. I get it, but we're running out of guys. Well, look at where we're at now with these trees and with these offensive coordinators. Just the NFC South, okay? This week, the NFC South has hired three offensive coordinators. Clint Kubiak, Zach Robinson, Liam Cohen. Let's talk about these. Clint Kubiak was already an offensive coordinator a couple years ago. They were fine in Minnesota, whatever. He goes and takes a nondescript job on the Niners staff, but because it's on the Niners staff, fast track, immediate. You were, we're picking off the la- seventh layer of the Shanahan McVay tree now, and that's what we're doing. Zach Robinson, never called plays ever. I am excited about what he could potentially do because it's an unknown. Those guys that have we haven't seen do it from that tree, it's like, ooh, there's intrigue. Like, maybe he can do this well. Liam Cohen, the Rams retooled. Here's what I'll say about this. The Rams retooled their offensive coaching staff last offseason, and I think that they did that with intentionality. They wanted to remake what that building felt like compared to what it was in 2022. He was the offensive coordinator in 2022. So you have two guys who have already done this to middling results and one guy who's never done this, and we come away from being like, yeah, that makes sense. Those are the guys that everyone is chasing, and I totally understand how they landed there. Yeah, it's it's a formula that is working, and it's successful, and you have to figure Sean McVay sitting there like, Yep, this this is what I've created. I've created a forest. Forget the <laughs> Every train. year, that guy. Every year. And and it's, I will never At least Michael Fleur kept it. It's still there. He got a couple guys to hang around this year. It's true. One of my favorite things is uh, to reflect back on, on hot takes and tweets that you have. And I remember um, the day that the Rams hired Sean McVay. I tweeted with so much knowledge and intel and, and obviously insight. Sean McVay is too... <laughs> I can't even say without laughing. Sean McVay is too young to take on the responsibilities that come with being a head coach. This is all moving too fast. Well, but even he was a coordinator for like three years before he got that and job. He, and he, you talk about experience and seeing it, and 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 obviously being mentored by John Gruden and Mike Shanahan and being around it. And and I always believe, and and not I won't even tell you I believe. I know this for a fact because I still talk to all these guys that. The coaches that were in Washington during those hell years, uh, obviously it was Kyle Shanahan, Matt LaFleur, Sean McVay, and there's 40,000, Raheem Morris, there's 40,000 other guys. Yeah. Um, I think Kevin O'Connell was even there for him. Everyone was there. Um, they, they saw a lot and they learned. They learned how to get through adversity and, and I'm sure also what not to do. And I, I truly believe that is what's made them really great leaders as well and, and, problem solvers because they were faced with so much at such a young age but they had tons of experience doing that it wasn't like as you said Sean McVay calls plays for one year and gets a head coaching job he was there for a while at least two maybe three yeah as the offensive coordinator he was a tight ends coach first and then then he worked his way up the last kind of observation I had about the head coaching cycle specifically I want to talk about Mike McDonald and about him going to Seattle and not Washington right Essentially had a choice, probably. Decided he did. to go to Seattle. He did. Washington offered him. He then went to Seattle, and Seattle gave him a much better opportunity, and he enjoyed the Seattle visit more from what I was told. This is going to be an ongoing thing that I want to keep revisiting, because every single cycle, we're going to have five, eight, ten jobs that come open, and we're going to have to decipher which are the good jobs and which are the bad jobs. And I think the McDonald thing presents an interesting experiment. The idea and promise of the Washington job new ownership, second overall pick, all of this cap space, all of this flexibility. It's a blank slate. In Washington, GM's been there for 14 years. You know who the quarterback is. you got some proven pieces. You know what the ownership is like. Mm-hmm. The Chargers job at the end really being the most attractive job because of the quarterback. I think that certainty rules these decisions and rules the appeal more than we like to give credit. I think that we like to look at, all right, look how well set up and well positioned this organization is. And I think the people that are actually choosing to take these jobs and maybe the only one they're ever going to get want the certainty. They want things that they can actually bank on because they've seen them work. Which there's some, there's some irony there, right? So I had a general manager say to me, there's so much value in the head coach who doesn't have any blemishes yet. Right, So we just saw the cycle where some of these new guys like Mike McDonald are getting opportunities like Dave Canales. They're getting chances because you don't know their warts. You don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. It's the hope that you're buying. Mystery it's box. The thought of what they can be. Whereas you're seeing coaches perhaps maybe pick these organizations that they know everything about, that they have all the information. I understand why the commanders, yes, on paper, sound exciting and great and, and, and even being down there. 
um, over the last year or so, you, you feel the excitement about where they're headed. Having the information, having a little bit of the blueprint can give you a lot more job security than a, it's not a startup, but it's that same idea. Joining a company that's been in business for 40 years versus a company that's really just trying to figure it out. They have a committee of NBA people. They're really trying to get a lot of different voices in uh, to try to figure out the direction they're going. And whereas, you know, Seattle, they know exactly what they want. And they knew what they wanted from the start. I was told they were looking for a Pete Carroll type, just younger. They yep. they were going defense right out of the gate. They, 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 they were moving in that direction. It's not surprising to me. Because if you look at what's happened to them over the last two or three years, they tried everything. Everything. Let's do a little Fangio. Well, Clint Hurts here. Well, he'll call the defense, but we'll sprinkle in some of these Sean Desai ideas. And then this year, well, Clint's going to take over, but we're going to try all these different funky coverages that we didn't play before. And we're going to work on the fronts and we're going to be a little bit more modern. And it never took. And so you look at what the offense has been and the offense has pieces. The offense has had production. They can't figure out the defense. So if I'm that organization and I'm John Schneider, I'm saying, listen, if we can get a guy in here and we can build a defense that can stop these monsters that we have to play against four times a year, we'll figure out the offense because we've already seen that work. So I get heading that direction if you're Seattle. And you're not getting a type of play caller here on defense that is considered a whiz kid. And this isn't taking away from coach at all. This is just the way he... The identity of what his defense is is what we've seen before. This isn't yep. um, going to be something so creative and outside the box that we're all so interested of what is this going to be. We know what it is. We've seen this before. It's sturdy. It's sturdy. Yeah. And Correct. He, he's a sturdy coach. You know, some of these guys that are a little bit younger, you know, they have that sort of vibe about them where maybe they like the microphone. They like the press conference. They like the spotlight. Mike McDonald's not that sort of guy. So I, I don't think that that's something that you really have to worry about. He's a 36-year-old coach, but he's really like 48 and grizzled when it comes to, I think, how he approaches all of this stuff. It's like he was in Vegas for eight days. Yeah. <laughs> Mike McDonald feels every day like how I'm going to feel next Monday. Let, let's stick with Washington very quickly because we've had some news over the last six hours or so since I got off the plane. Cliff Kingsbury, reportedly going to be the offensive coordinator in Vegas. That falls through. Now he is the offensive coordinator reportedly, for Washington. What happened over the last two days? Why the intrigue, I think, around Cliff Kingsbury, and why did it end up playing out the way that it did based on who you've talked to? I thought you were immediately were to say Washington's trading up to go after their quarterback. I, 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 can't I, do, I can't do it. I, I Every single day, having some new nugget about what's going to happen with the number one overall pick, It's mm-hmm. I cannot make it to May. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to get there. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Brad Spielberger from PFF has a great meme going where it's the how many days uh, since nonsense from the office. And with Caleb Williams, it's every single day you're erasing it. Zero days since nonsense with the entire And we never draft learn situation. because you look back at this time last year and nothing coming out about the draft was even correct. That's why I just don't pay attention to it. I, I just don't care right now. See, I, none I, of it matters. That's the, that's the difference between you and I. I. I read all this and I buy into it and I start making myself, uh, you know, or I put myself in a position where – I'm chasing these stupid stories for no reason. Uh, but you're right. It, it is too early. But in terms of, of Cliff, I was told that there was a snag in the contract. Okay. When I've heard the snag in the contract tale before, though, there's usually more to it. There's usually sure. something more specific in terms of the relationship with the coach, with the owner, with the GM. So we'll, we'll find out more down the line. I'll stick with what I was just told. I'll report that it was contractual. Um, but I reached out to some people in Washington within minutes of when that happened and, and said, you know, what about Cliff? And, and it, they they were on it immediately. So it makes me think that they, they were talking before all of this to, to try to see if they can lure him to Washington. What's the league opinion of Cliff Kingsbury? Because we have two teams fighting over him to be their offensive coordinator. The way that it ended in Arizona last year, and just the way that the second half of those seasons went, the offense left a lot to be desired in moments. It felt disjointed at times. If you look at what USC's offense was this year when he was there, they took a huge step back. I mean, everyone who's going to be watching Caleb Williams tape over the next three or four months can watch 2022 and watch 2023 and see the gap there. Like, What does the NFL think of Cliff Kingsbury? I know you don't give your podcast titles or at least each show, but I would like this show to just be Mystery Box. And the reason why is because here's another example 
and it's kind of what you were saying before about about Vrabel going away for a year. The mystery of Cliff again in the NFL helped him a lot. I think this thought everyone just remembers some of the good moments that he had, and he he did have a few. Um, I was surprised that he got as much traction because I do recall when he was uh, trying to look to get back in and he was sending out some messages to different GMs and head coaches around the league that he'd been interested in trying to get back. I don't, I didn't feel like everyone was excited to get him on their staff. Yeah. And then this tidal wave of look who's back and look, some of it is media driven. Okay. It doesn't hurt. It, it doesn't, it's late in the process too. There aren't that many guys. Correct. There's a little bit of desperation. You got Peter Schrager on Good Morning Football showing pictures of him sitting in, uh, sitting in Cliff's home, going up there, giving him re- all this stuff helps. And this isn't taking shots. Like this is great if if you if you have um people moving that message along, reminding decision makers who are watching and listening that oh yeah, I'm here, I'm here. It helps. So. Uh, I know Dan Quinn w- was looking for someone that he feels comfortable just handing it all over to. Mm-hmm. And obviously with Cliff's experience, being a head coach in both college and the NFL, he- he's going to be able to-, to-, to manage this. So how long did was the time frame between when the Washington or the Vegas contract fell through and when he was hired in Washington? A day? Right? Less? Yeah. Just, I'd say just about a day and a half. So let's think about this practically. Even if he was on the radar for Dan Quinn and that staff, how much time does do Dan Quinn and Adam Peters have to go back and watch 2022 Cardinals film before they make this decision? Well, it goes back to when you interview for the job, right? So when Dan Quinn met with Washington, he had to have a list of coordinators that he was hoping but to how, how much do you, how much work do you think is actually being okay. put into who's picking these coordinators and how how this much is... do they actually understand about the guys that they're picking so because i have question. a feeling that it is way less than people that follow the nfl want it to be it's scary actually i had a conversation with an offensive coordinator looking for a job uh and he said you don't understand how grueling these interviews are i said oh because they're just asking you so many questions he said, no, it's like starting from zero. You have to explain because they don't know. You're not walking in to a situation where they have a whole book on you. They barely know you. They, bar- they, they So if you can sell it, so you're pull, in. Pull the gotta have pull the best stuff, show it. You're in. It's crazy. That's just, they leads to a larger conversation that probably needs to happen about how truncated this process is. The fact that it happens in three weeks after the season ends is insane. These <laughs> guys is are truly exhausted. insane. I remember texting um, a few days after one of the hirings about – I was texting with someone that didn't get a job. And he didn't even know what job I was talking about because he had interviewed for a bunch of others. And I was using the name of a general manager and I said, hey, the GM told me, blah, blah. And he – it wasn't clicking because I think he just had so much on his mind. And just to, I've always thought about this too, especially when I've been reporting, you know, this person's here and then tomorrow they're going to travel to LA and then after LA they're going to Florida. Like, How are they even able to do all this prep work? It's crazy. I mean, at least those guys over time, you build the book that you're going to bring in, right? You're prepared for this moment. But if you're a coach, you get to the end of the season, you have a meeting with ownership on the Monday after the year is over. Your offensive coordinator's under contract. You think he's going to be back. After that meeting with ownership, they say, you know what? I think we need to make a change. So it's January 11th that that happens. You didn't even know you'd need a new offensive coordinator before that conversation. So now, in the span of a week, you have to build a list of candidates. You have to do legwork on those candidates. And you have to figure out who is actually the right person for that job. There is no way. In that period of time, you can go back and watch six offenses to the degree that you need to no. to have an actual opinion on who you should hire. No, no, exactly. It's 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 almost as if you need to spend most of your time during the season not just worried about your own team, but worried about everybody else's. And most of the time, that's usually what's happening. It's they're recalling from a game when they played that actual team. I'm talking about it's a candidate. Exactly what it is. And just saying, well, when we played you guys, we did this, this, and this. And I saw that you guys had problems here, here, and here. And that's how they're sort of informing these organizations, which is 
why I was saying I, I thought Washington would bring in more people to interview to to learn more about what they're doing. But I, I truly believe they they obviously had Ben Johnson as their number one choice. That fell through. Mike McDonald was next, and then Dan Quinn. And and I think in the end, sometimes this happens. You fall into it, and, and maybe it works out. Any coordinator moves that piqued your interest that you saw that's like oh man okay that's an interesting one ken dorsey mm-hmm. made me go wait really because buffalo looked very different after ken left and i know they had a lot of success with him and in cleveland knowing kevin stefanski likes to call the plays he runs the offense he has the control over everything that they do on that team and obviously more specifically on the offensive side of the ball I just was surprised they went in that direction. Uh, I know Brian Johnson had interviewed for the job, and I thought that was going to be their hire, actually. I thought they would go. Interesting. They would move there. Um, so I'd say that one stands out to me the most. These coordinator moves, that and the one in Philly with Kellen Moore. And Kellen Moore will call plays in Philadelphia, Correct. so that's a little bit of a different dynamic. But I think that there are teams and staffs around the league that have gotten to the end of the season and said to themselves, we need new ideas. Right in Philly, it's the most obvious. Philly just needed a reset. They needed people to come in and be like, "Well, what if you tried this? What if this was your answer to this?" Which I am interested to see how that shakes out, right? Because if Nick Sirianni had his hands in on everything, you're telling me now he's just going to be able to say, "Nope, nope, nope, nope. Oh, you're going to get this." I mean, you think there's probably a conversation that happened with the two guys who run that organization with Nick Sirianni after the season ended? I, I'm sure there was a very, very long conversation. In yeah. fact, I know for a fact there was a very, very long conversation. I don't know if he's necessarily the one that Nick is making that choice ultimately, but I, I have to imagine that Jeffrey Lurie and Howie Roseman got to the end of the year and be like, we need some new stuff. We need some things that are very different than what we've been doing over the last two years. And that's what Callum Moore provides you. And with Ken Dorsey, this is a staff in Cleveland that – See, it's gotten it had gotten stale, but if you look at the way that it was comprised over the last three, four years since Stefanski got there, they had only lost people. You know, Drew Petzing went to be the offensive coordinator in Arizona. He was the quarterback's coach, but he's been Kevin's right hand guy for years and years and years. So I think they got to the end of this, and when they moved on from Van Pelt, it was more about how can we bring in new stuff? How can we make sure that we're taking the offense in a new direction? And if you look at what the Bills were under Ken Dorsey over the last couple of years and what the Browns have been over the last several years, there's a disconnect there, but I think they're going to sell you that as a positive, not a negative. Because what these teams are trying to do as they build the staffs is making sure they're re-energizing those rooms and what the offense looks like with new ideas. I do believe a lot of people in Cleveland are curious how the offense is going to work with Ken Dorsey's influence now and how much input he's truly going to have. Um, I know I had somebody tweet, ask me a question about if Stefanski is going to give away those play calling duties. And, and I would be I surprised if he did. I would be shocked. If yeah. he did. I, he, he's not just going to do that because he's not going to have an owner that's going to tell him to do it. Like we're seeing in Philadelphia where it's, we're changing this up. Um, but I, I, I found that one to be, that one really stood out. And maybe some of that is superficial. Maybe it's because, you know, one person's trash is another person's treasure, you know, and it makes you go, well, it didn't work there. What makes you think it's going to work here? I think two things. One, the offense was good under Ken Dorsey. It was good. I, I, They needed a change. My sense of why they needed a change, this is all just kind of secondhand, picking up things that like Brandon Bede's putting down in press conferences. Ken Dorsey and Joe Brady, very different personality-wise, right? Having somebody who's maybe a little bit more dynamic, a little bit different at the front of the room. When you're Ken Dorsey in Cleveland, you aren't the leader of the offense. You're, you can just be an ideas guy, right? Like that's the benefit of being an offensive coordinator for a team with a play calling head coach. It's a different sort of job as an offensive coordinator, even beyond the play calling, what's being asked of you day to day. Now, the person that is going to be in charge of the offense with without having uh, someone overseeing it as much as we'll, we know Kevin Stefanski would is going to be Arthur Smith in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. And that one I really like. And I, I, I know Falcons... Fans are going to tweet at me. Of, oh, he didn't know how to utilize our key players. We already went on a rant about this last show, me and Nate. So this is familiar territory. So, okay, so I'm probably I'm going to guess, knowing both your personalities, you're going to probably agree with me that yeah, you're, you're asking the wrong person here. If you want pushback on this, okay, yeah, okay. So we're yeah, together on yeah. this. I think sometimes Arthur overthought it. I think sometimes when 
when he just did what he did well, as simple as that sounds, he always had success. And going back from play calling time, play calling in Tennessee and seeing snippets of it in Atlanta. And and I, Arthur Smith is a great example where someone may just be better at playing coordinator and being in that role versus the head coaching stuff, which I think was really hard for him. I also think that him having guardrails on and having somebody put the guardrails on will be helpful because what happened to them last year, this is like maybe too far psychoanalysis, but I think what happened last year and the success they had in 2022, relative success, they were top 10 offense according to advanced metrics with what? Drake London, an injured Kyle Pitts, Marcus Mariota, quarterback, Tyler Algier. And the weirdness that propelled that success, I think, drove more weirdness in the 2023 offense than was probably necessary. I would agree. And what really stood out to me during this cycle, every single team, and I can say this and report this comfortably, wanted Arthur Smith as their offensive coordinator. The teams that were looking to fill that void had reached out to him, which I think, which surprised some people based on what they saw in Atlanta and thinking that, ah, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. That's one of those situations where everyone around the league sees it, that maybe sometimes others don't. It's not surprising to me. He had multiple successful years in Tennessee. They did some good stuff in Atlanta. He's really smart. The New York Jets met with him even just to have him join their offensive staff here, knowing that, Nathaniel Hackett has been struggling with Aaron Rodgers. He's not the same type of play caller that we saw when he was having success in Green Bay. Maybe get some new ideas in that building. Uh, and then eventually he wound up picking, you know, that opportunity to work with Mike Tomlin. And they, the offensive coordinator, or the offensive line coach there is the guy he worked with in Tennessee. Correct. So yep. there, there's so a lot there. And, and Do- downings on the staff. Yeah. yeah. So yep. there's and a lot of, a lot Tony of stuff. Dues, the running back coaches there as well. So yeah, it, it, it is the Tennessee of the North, um, which would have been really funny if Arthur wound up there. That would have been such a bizarre uh, coaching staff in terms of, of their backgrounds, but also kind of smart. Yeah. The uh, one other coordinator thing that I, I when I saw it, I was like, oh, OK, is Anthony Weaver going to Miami? OK, so that's two things. One, it's so cool and so crazy how fast everything shifts. Right. So we're two years removed, maybe even a year removed from a third of the league wanting to run a Vic Fangio-esque defense and picking off of the Vic Fangio tree. And now... If you look at every single opening for a defensive coordinator job in the NFL, not a single one of them were filled with direct Vic Fangio disciples other than Vic Fangio. It was either continuity and the places there were continuity, Patriots, Bills, Ravens, Rams, all stuck with guys on staff. Bears, Packers, Jags, Titans, Chargers all went to other defensive systems outside of the Vic Fangio tree. And this is a year or two removed from everybody wanting it. Now, people want the Ravens stuff. Weavers in Miami. You have Zach Orr now has taken over for Mike McDonald, obviously. Mike McDonald's taken that job. And then Gerard Wilson's in Tennessee. So now we go from one team running. And Jesse Minter, you can make an argument that's similar sort of system. So when we went from one team doing the Raven stuff last year to now potentially six teams doing it as the number of Fangio teams gets less and less. How fast that happens and how fast the system du jour shifts in the NFL is wild to me. It's a blip of success. And, and, and that's actually taking away from what Baltimore's done. They've had continued I success. get wanting to chase it. Right? it it's, it's awesome. The, the model works. The structure works. It's why the commanders were obsessed with how the, how um, Baltimore built everything. They want it, They want to basically copy what they're doing there. Um, and Anthony Weaver is just one of those uh, coaches that other coaches have said, how come he doesn't have a job yet? He's, he's just, players really like him. He's had, he had a lot of success in Houston working with uh, Whitney Merciless and JJY and and you know he'd been in Baltimore the last few seasons where you know, the same team that drafted him when he was a player um, and you know his biggest fan is Coach Harbaugh I mean he, he raves about him if, if there I coach is pretty nice about everybody but you talk about Anthony Weaver and you can tell that he he knows that he's got head coach uh, qualities about him so he'll you know he'll take over in Miami where Vic was and you know you're hearing a little bit of uh, chatter about how it wasn't working for Vic um, in Miami. Perhaps it's a little too player friendly there for, mm-hmm. for what Vic prefers. But that's what I'm talking about, that shift in just like what type of coaches are being valued around the league and what head coaches are valuing in their staffs. I mean, the idea that like Vic Fangio can do the job that he did, which was very good. That all, that defense was really fucking good before everybody got hurt. 
and we get to the end of the year and they're like, yeah, it's not our vibe here. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. But that's kind of where we are, I think. And Anthony Weaver's vibe, super player friendly, right? A former player himself. Obviously, his build did not scare Miami. He is also a very large human being. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring a full circle here before we get out of here. What do you think Belichick and Vrabel spend their year doing? Watching tons of tape. Um, I would like to pitch them to do a podcast, just them. I would love to hear just Fridays put together some commentary about what they see around the league. And then you have to have the illustrator, right? And just have him breaking down. Tell Bill that we have spots. I mean, if he, if he wants to come on, he's more than welcome. Well, there I go. See you later, everybody. Uh, I, I think it would make a lot of sense. I don't see them doing media this year. I could see maybe perhaps uh, a couple appearances during big events to just go in, maybe do hop on a Fox set uh, for the playoffs next year when you know they want to get back in there. I am going to be very interested to see, let's just call it their campaign for 2025. Yeah. What these two believe the way to get back in is going to be and if it's through the media oh boy how interesting this will be two people who aren't exactly the most media friendly types yeah, you don't having to hop in and go in a place that they're not comfortable to try to get that support so soon you know we'll be seeing peter schwiger walking bill belichick's dog uh and then it'll be a whole big thing um and then <laughs> Whatever it will take to get them. Uh, I can understand that, though, because I think that Belichick specifically has to change the narrative, right? The narrative drove so much of this, and I think that he has to do something to change it, whether that's being more media friendly, whether that's putting his name out there, whether that's showing a little bit of personality, or I think whether that's coming into some meetings next year and being like, I watched the league this year. Here are the 20 guys I think are good coaches. I think that is the way it goes. I think it's, I watched, here's where I think... I can make your team better based on my experiences. Uh, Even when you read Belichick's thank you note that he put in the Boston Globe to Patriot fans, he had some charm in there. And and anyone that has spent time with him has said he can be very charming, Um, both Belichick and Rabel. So I think they're going to probably have to lean into that a little bit. And look, there's nothing wrong with stepping away a little bit. They could all use a little bit of recharge and, they both may come back and be the two hottest candidates next year, to, depending how all this shakes out. Them and Ben Johnson. <laughs> ben depending Johnson. on how, how the Lions here goes. <laughs> if he's ready. Diane Rossini, always great to chat with you. Great to see you. Great to be doing this in person. And uh, I'm looking forward to this week, however long it may be. I cannot wait to attack the Vegas Strip. See okay. you next week. Guys, thank you very much for listening. We will have a show coming your way pretty much every day this week. We're off tomorrow. But plan is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Football GM on Saturday. And we've got some cool video stuff coming your way from Radio Row. I'm paying off the Wins League bet on Thursday at Radio Row. So be on the lookout for that. I'm not looking forward to that. But you guys hopefully will get a kick out of it. For now, though, that is all we got. A lot of Super Bowl chatter on tap over the next three or four days. Until then, appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.